Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. This is part two of our two-part series on Meriwether Lewis. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. If you have not listened to part one, make sure you listen to the other episode we released today to hear the early part of his story. We're going to throw it back to our interview with our friend and fellow historical enthusiast, Derek. When Lewis and Clark finally get back, Lewis goes to speak with Jefferson in the White House. And Jefferson's pretty elated as well. Jefferson gets to meet Sheheke. He leafs through Lewis's journals. He's able to see the plant and animal samples from out west and see the Native American artifacts. Jefferson is extremely happy with Lewis's work. He wants Lewis to do two things. First of all, he wants Lewis to publish his journals. Lewis has done an excellent job of recording things out west. Now, there are big gaps in his journals. Sometimes it'll go for weeks, or even, say, a month at a time, in which Lewis doesn't write anything down. Clark, on the other hand, is writing down stuff basically every day. But Lewis is the more interesting author. He just has better prose. So why is Lewis so erratic with his journal authoring? There's widespread speculation. Maybe he's depressed at times and just can't bring himself to write things down. Maybe he only likes to write things down when something exciting happens and he just gets bored in between. I mean, there's no doubt that Clark writes down things that are very monotonous, like, we hit a sandbar today. Well, I'd have to assume that most days... Nothing all that interesting happens. Exactly. But Lewis's journals are still incredible, and Jefferson wants them published, even the boring stuff. Lewis wants to publish the journals in four different books. He wants the first two books to be a narrative of what was out west, the sort of day-by-day interactions that they had. The second volume is supposed to be sketches of plants and animals and Native American garb, all that sort of stuff. It's more of a scientific study. The third volume, it's basically a map. Clark's observations mostly, but Lewis's input too. This map is so that the American people can know what's out there. And Lewis does a great job of hiring people who can help him with this journal publication. He can't just publish it as is, because if you go through the journals... He'll make a description of a woodpecker that is just inserted into a random day, whereas that woodpecker needs to be put into the scientific volume. He's able to hire a lot of scientists and professionals who can help him with this process. He hires botanists and ornithologists and geologists, folks who can help him create, say, the scientific volume. But one thing he's not doing is hiring an editor. The one person he needs to pull the information out so that he can create the scientific volume. Why he does this, nobody today really knows. But he just doesn't. He sits on his hands and doesn't hire an editor. Meanwhile, Jefferson wants Lewis to take up a different project. He wants Lewis to become the governor of the Upper Louisiana Territory. He wants him to go back to St. Louis and take over territorial administration of a lot of the territory that he just explored. Well, he would be like a rock star back in He's a rock star. He's the best suited for the job. And it's not like he's going to the wilderness again. He'll be in St. Louis, which has a population of thousands of people. 
But Lewis doesn't go out to the post right away, which is probably pretty concerning to Jefferson. Let's think about what Jefferson is doing. Jefferson's not an idiot. He's a politician who knows his game pretty well. He's looking out for the future of his political party. Let's look at what he's had Lewis do. Lewis is an army officer. He was the president's personal aide. He was the one who spearheaded an expedition out west. And now, Jefferson is placing him as a territorial governor. This is complete speculation, but it sounds very much like Jefferson is grooming Lewis for something bigger. Who knows? Maybe he even wants him to be president at some point. Again, complete speculation. This isn't your own speculation. This is a combination of historian speculation that this may There is some. I personally think it's probably true, but it's not completely out of the minds of the historical community. Jefferson wants Lewis to take up the post, but Lewis doesn't do it right away. Instead, he spends about a year in the D.C. Philadelphia area, and I can't say I blame him. He just spent two years and nine months out there, and he probably doesn't want to go back right away. He probably wants to spend some time with friends, soaking in all of the recognition that he gained. So he makes lectures at the American Philosophical Society, which is based in Philadelphia. He gets to go to balls and social events. At those balls and social events, there's obviously going to be a good deal of alcohol. I mean, it's early 1800s America. Everybody drank back then. So Lewis is going to be drinking quite a bit too. But despite the fact that he had plenty of alcohol, which he might not even have to pay for, who knows... He is still having his landlady send up 12 packs of ale to his room. So he's beginning to drink heavily. Maybe not an alcoholic, but he's drinking quite a bit. He's also trying to find a girl to marry him. Now, who knows? He might not even have a huge interest in women. A lot of the guys out west were very interested in Native American girls, but according to the journals of many other men on the expedition, because Lewis and Clark weren't the only ones writing stuff down, the other guys even said that Lewis and Clark weren't really getting involved with the natives out there. So who knows? Lewis might not have a huge interest in women. Maybe he does. Regardless, he's trying to find a wife whether it's because he's a romantic or because he wants the social status because he's about to be governor. Well, and he's, what, early 30s at this point? He is. So this yes. is fairly traditional time back then exactly. for a man to find a wife. Exactly. But Lewis can't find a girl to marry him. He showed particular interest in one girl, and she decided to go for another guy. Lewis wrote a letter to a friend about the incident, and Lewis said he had never felt like less of a hero. Lewis finally goes out to his post. He is governor of the Upper Louisiana Territory, and he has a rather important project to take care of. You remember he got a Native American chief named Sheheke to come back to D.C. with him. Sheheke needs to go home. He's been away from his tribe for quite some time, and Lewis promised him safe passage. But, just like any Native American chief, Sheheke has enemies. Lewis needs to grant him safe passage back up the Missouri River. Now, Lewis can't really rely on the military. Like I mentioned, our military was tiny, and for the most part, they are defending forts along the United States coast. 
Since there isn't really a military presence out west, Lewis has to find some other form of protection for Sheheke. You might recall that old British companies used to have their own militaries, like these private industrial groups. One of those groups was the East India Trading Company. They had a pseudo-military which was in Asia. There is a company out west that has something sort of similar. It's called the St. Louis Missouri River Fur Company. Jefferson and Lewis decide it's time to allocate some money to sock into this company so that they can provide safe passage for Sheheke. Here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Lewis owns part of this company. There's a bit of a conflict of interests. Now, that doesn't mean it's embezzlement. It is a U.S. government-approved project, but it is a little dicey. Lewis sends Sheheke up the Missouri River, and not too long later, Sheheke and his escort come back. They were turned away by Native American tribes. Apparently, they didn't have a big enough force to push themselves through those Native American villages. So Lewis has to try again, and he has to keep socking money into this. Lewis figures, you know what? This government red tape, getting DC to approve, is going to take way too long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend my own money to fund this project again. Let these guys go up the Missouri River. After that, I will send vouchers to D.C. so that they can pay me back for my expenses. Roughly around the same time, there is a presidential administration change. Jefferson is out, and James Madison is in. Now, Madison is the same political party as Jefferson and Lewis, but that doesn't mean he knows Lewis. Now, many presidents, when they enter office, like to clean house. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what Madison has planned for Lewis. But it does mean that Lewis needs to play his cards carefully. And now Lewis is sending vouchers to D.C. asking for money. And he's not asking money for the territory. He's not really asking for money for the company. He's asking money for him. And Lewis is not very good at being a desk jockey. If he has something exciting to say, he can write it down in vivid detail. But when it comes to accounting or mundane reports, he might just get bored. Well, he's the rock star frontiersman. Yeah, exactly. Explored the West. He's used to really exciting stuff. So Lewis is not describing this situation to DC very well. He's just saying, hey, I need some money. Here's some bills. Well, they are legitimate bills, but what he's not telling DC is how this money is allocated, exactly what this money is for. So the bills get to DC, and Madison's administration change is like, hey, we don't know what this is for. He's not really describing it. He wants money put into his own pocket. We're not paying this bill. Lewis now thinks his wallet and his reputation are on the line. And Lewis is having simultaneous issues with his mentor, Thomas Jefferson. Remember, Jefferson wanted Lewis to publish the journals. Well, Lewis spent a year in D.C. and Philadelphia, and now he has spent two years as governor. He's been sitting on his hands for three years, and the journals are still not published. Jefferson is not pleased. He sends letters to Lewis saying, Look, buddy, I have promised copies of these journals to friends of mine in Paris. 
and you're not doing anything with it. Your lack of effort in this area is now causing my reputation to be tarnished. Lewis now has the pressure of DC and his mentor breathing down his neck at the same time. Plus, Lewis had to borrow money in order to pay for the expedition, so he's also got creditors in St. Louis walking around saying, hey, can you please pay us back? You owe us money? They're just basically chasing him through the streets. And he's also kind of sitting on this bestseller that when he puts out his memoirs, it's going to be huge. It's going to be huge, and he has pseudo-copyrights on it. He gets to make all the money off of that, and he's not doing anything with it. Lewis now believes that his wallet and his reputation are on the line. So Lewis figures that he needs to go back to D.C. He needs to kill two birds with one stone. He needs to go to the Capitol and get the administration to pay the bill. He needs to clear the air and explain to them what's going on face to face. But then he also needs to go to Philadelphia and hire an editor, get this process underway. If he can find the editor, pretty much everything else is put in place. Lewis starts off his trip down the Mississippi River. His intent is to get to the Gulf and then sail around the coast to get to D.C. Partway through the trip, though, Lewis decides to change his travel plans. And for a pretty good reason. By this point, it is 1809. What's going to happen three years later? War of 1812. War of 1812. Our relationship with the British sucks. Remember, we had just won our independence a couple decades ago. And now, the British are sailing around our coast, kidnapping Americans and drafting them into the British Navy. Lewis doesn't want to be kidnapped, but he has another reason for not wanting to fall into the hands of the British. He needs to protect the journals. If the British get a hold of those they're going to be able to know what's out west. Plus, the British already claim that they own the Oregon country because one of their explorers was able to chart the coastline out there. Lewis has actually explored the interior, which gives the United States a claim on that territory. If the British know what's out there, they're going to be able to totally take over that region. Lewis needs to make sure he finds another route. He disembarks his boat at modern-day Memphis. It's a place called Fort Pickering. His intent is to cut across on Indian trails until he reaches a place called the Natchez Trace. The Natchez Trace was a major commerce highway at the time. Farmers in the Ohio-Kentucky area would sail their goods, crops, whiskey, furs, all of that on barges down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. They would sell off their goods in New Orleans or Natchez, and then they would take the Natchez Trace all the way up to Nashville. From there, they could find their way home. This was such an important commerce road that Thomas Jefferson gave it the designation of the first national highway. So it's a very easy way to get through the wilderness. Lewis figures that's the best way for him to get to Nashville. From Nashville, he can find his way to D.C. But when he disembarks at Fort Pickering, some rather interesting events begin to take place. There is a fort commander there. He does not submit this report right away. He does not give details right away. But sometime after all of these events unfold, the fort commander writes down that when Lewis arrived at Fort Pickering, 
the fort commander went to talk to the boatmen who had been transporting Lewis down the river. These boatmen apparently claimed that Lewis had tried to kill himself twice. Apparently, everything is starting to overwhelm him. That information was learned before he died? Like, this is happening sequentially? This is sequential, yes. Additionally, the fort commander put Lewis under house arrest for a couple of weeks because Lewis was intoxicated. He was drinking heavily. Lewis connects with a guide named James Neely. He is a U.S. Army captain and an Indian agent. Lewis is going to be traveling with his personal servant, a free black man named Pernia. He's also going to be traveling with the guide and the guide's slave. Partway through their trip, some of the horses get away. So Neely decides, I'm going to go chase down these horses. Lewis, you continue to the next available inn and you wait there for me. So we have this guy who's been... Drinking heavily. Allegedly tried to kill himself multiple times. Probably depressed. Probably depressed, or it would, it would appear to be the case, because of all these issues piled on top of him. And now he's being left alone. He's being left alone. There's one other thing to consider about Lewis. His medical condition. First of all, when Lewis was out west, you recall he birthed Sacagawea's baby. He was well acquainted with medicine at the time. He had actually had some informal training by Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is one of the lead physicians in the United States at the time. Mm -hmm. And he started Dickinson College, which Randall McGavick yeah. went to. Right, right. Benjamin Rush is able to train Lewis in multiple ways. He teaches Lewis a little bit about surgery. He also teaches Lewis about ways that he can medicate his men while they're out west. He prescribes poultices and laxatives and eye washes, all kinds of stuff. Lewis is just like any of us. Sometimes he will feel poorly. Like when I'm having stomach issues, I'll take a little bit of Pepto. Lewis would sometimes <laughs> feel poorly, and he would take some of those medications himself. The eyewash contains high concentrations of lead, and the laxative is about 75% mercury. He's been ingesting that on and off since the beginning of the expedition, which was six years prior. On top of that, by the time Lewis is moving down the Mississippi to try to get to D.C. to account for his expenditures, Lewis thinks he has malaria or that he is suffering from the after effects of it. That's what he thinks. Maybe he does. But whether he does or not, he claims he is in pain. And because he is in pain, he needs a sleep aid. Every night before bed, he is taking a full gram of opium. To give you some perspective, two grams is a lethal dose. So drinking heavily, opium, mercury, lead, depression. Not a good combination. Not a good combination. Mentor breathing down his neck. Yeah. The political financial problems. He can't find a girl to marry him. There's all kinds of things going wrong. Can't publish the journals. If you were to shuffle a deck of cards right now and pick a card... None of this looks good for Lewis. <sighs> Things seem to be going bad. And James Neely leaves him alone to continue to a inn by himself. And might I say that the road Lewis is traveling on is rather gloomy. Eventually, he comes to a building called Grinder's Stand. It's an inn of sorts. Mr. Grinder is away on business. Mrs. Grinder is going to be running the inn. Mrs. Grinder said that when Lewis arrived, he was acting odd. 
He said one moment he'd be sitting there talking about the fine meal that she had made, and then he'd get up and start arguing with himself, and then he'd sit back down, smoke his pipe, and talk about the weather, and then he'd get back up and argue with himself, and then he'd sit back down, smoke his pipe, and talk about the weather. Eventually, Lewis goes to sleep in the inn. Mrs. Grinder is going to stay in the kitchen, which is about 200 yards away. Lewis's servant, Pernia, is going to stay in the loft of the stable, which presumably is further away than the kitchen is. Later on that night, two gunshots are heard. Mrs. Grinder looks out the kitchen and sees Lewis stumble from his room into the yard. Lewis somehow is able to make his way to the kitchen. He knocks on the door and asks for water. She doesn't come out right away, because he's been acting crazy and there were just guns shooting. But eventually, she works up the nerve. She and Lewis's servant try to stop the bleeding. Here's where it gets a little dicey. There were two gunshots. That is not normal in a suicide. He's been wounded twice? He has. One injury is between the chest and the abdomen. That will not necessarily kill you right away. Probably won't hit your lungs. It won't hit your heart probably won't hit an artery or a vein if it angles the right way. No, and if you were wanting to do yourself in, you wouldn't shoot yourself in the middle of your chest. Or Un unless your you're chest. just totally erratic at this point. Right. Which, I mean, he has been drinking. He, he might have just right. you know, dropped the gun a little bit. And the other thing, too, is maybe he spent a few days not drinking. Because James Neely's been traveling with him, trying to keep Lewis sober. And if you've been drinking and you're kept sober for a couple of days, it can get worse. So Lewis is shot in the chest-slash-abdominal region. The other injury gashes off a piece of his skull at the forehead. Mrs. Grinder said it was not bleeding that bad. Apparently, it was enough of the skull that they could see his brain. But I guess there's no brain damage because Lewis is awake and he's talking for two to four hours after both gunshots. There are quite a few historians who claim that Lewis was murdered. Two gunshots is unusual. In those locations. In those locations. There is no denying that. Now, there are some historical events, like the moon landing, in which there is not a huge contention in the historical community. Some interpreters will claim that the moon landing was faked. They are an extreme minority. Lewis's death is not the same way. There is a sizable chunk of the historical community who believes he was murdered. My problem with that theory is there is a lack of viable suspects. One suspect would be Mrs. Grinder. Why is she a suspect? Mrs. Grinder, as far as we know, she's illiterate, just like a lot of people in the early 1800s, so she can't write her account down. People interview her over the years to ask her what happened, and they write it down. Her accounts do not match each other. There are detailed discrepancies, which throws some shadows over her accounts. But out of all of the weird things associated with Lewis's death, I am most confident in this explanation. Let me ask you guys a pointed question, and this is not rhetorical. I want an actual answer. Okay. What did you have for lunch yesterday? <laughs> Macaroni and cheese. I had leftover fajitas. Okay. But it took me a second to remember. It did. It what did. did you have for lunch eight days ago? Couldn't tell you. 
What did you have for lunch two years, nine months, and six days ago? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. It's the same thing with Mrs. Grinder. Now, is a suicide going to make a bigger impression on your mind than lunch? Yes. But, over time, you can forget things. Or you might romanticize it in your own mind and add things that weren't there. The first account that Mrs. Grinder gives is the day after it happened. Pretty reliable. The second one was a year later. Also pretty reliable, and there's only like half a detailed discrepancy in that account. Other than that, those two are almost identical. The third one is 30 years later. Plus, that account is taken by an unnamed school teacher, and it's published in a newspaper. Newspapers at the time were sometimes no better than tabloids. So here you've got a newspaper which might be describing the situation extravagantly. And then you've got a school teacher who might not even be real. Even if the school teacher is real, she claimed that Mrs. Grinder had told her the account quite a while before, so the school teacher might be misremembering. And then you've got Mrs. Grinder who has spent decades in between accounts. Anything can happen to the story through that telephone game. Regardless, Mrs. Grinder's accounts roughly tell the same story. Lewis shoots himself. Mrs. Grinder is not the only one on the property that night. Lewis's personal servant, Pernia, is there. Pernia gives an account of what happened. He gives his account to Thomas Jefferson and William Clark, both of whom knew Lewis pretty well. And if they expected that Pernia was lying, or if there was foul play, they might have said something or wrote something down about it. There is nothing to indicate that decisively. Mrs. Grinder and Pernia's accounts pretty much match each other. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence in favor of suicide is that after Lewis is shot, he is awake, remember, for two to four hours, and he is lucid. At no point that evening did he say, Hey, find the guy in the red pants who tried to kill me. Instead, he keeps saying morose things like, I'm so strong, so hard to die. Almost implying, No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to kill myself. Lewis bleeds out on the morning of October 11th, 1809. The guide arrives the next day and takes Mrs. Grinder's statement. He sends it to Thomas Jefferson. He also makes sure that the journals get back to Jefferson. So the journals were left. They weren't taken. Nothing was stolen. That is correct. Is there no other evidence for murder except for the two gunshots? Lewis had political enemies. There is no doubt about that. But here's the trouble with the idea that an assassin would follow him. Lewis starts the trip down the Mississippi River, and then he changes his travel plans halfway through. If he detours, nobody knows he's here. If somebody wanted to kill him, they might wait for him down in New Orleans. But down here, nobody knows where he is. And nobody would have killed him and then left the most valuable resource he had with him, which were the journals. If they premeditated it. The only other really viable option would be somebody mugging him. Somebody wanting to just take his possessions. Who had no idea who he was. Yeah, exactly. Lewis does have a bit of cash on his person when the journey starts. He does not have that cash when he dies. There are multiple reasons why that could be missing. 
Who knows, maybe he spent it on booze partway through the trip. Maybe he lost it. Unlikely. Another explanation is Lewis dies, and then you've got Pernia, who Lewis owes money to, or you've got Mrs. Grinder, in whose house Lewis had just died, or you've got a guide who needs to be compensated. All three of these individuals probably think that they deserve the money. So maybe after Lewis dies, they just lift it. Could a thief have stolen from Lewis? Yeah, maybe so. But Lewis is not just carrying the journals, which were left, and he's not just carrying cash, which is apparently missing. He's also carrying a rifle, two pistols, a tomahawk, a dagger, a silver pocket watch, and we know what happens to that stuff. Why would outlaws shoot him and not take his belongings? Even if they're not going to hawk that stuff, the Natchez Trace was pretty much the wilderness at the time, and those are good wilderness survival tools. There just seems to be a lack of evidence for murder. Suicide is the most likely answer. Mrs. Grinder is interviewed by the guide, James Neely. A year later, a friend of Lewis's, an ornithologist named Alexander Wilson, comes all the way to Tennessee to visit the grave. He interviewed Mrs. Grinder. Wilson's and Neely's accounts match up. Additionally, Pernia is interviewed by Jefferson and Clark. So you've got four different people who are talking to two different eyewitnesses. There was never any suspicion by those six people that there was foul play. Lewis is buried outside of Hohenwald, Tennessee on the Natchez Trace Parkway. He has a monument there in the shape of a broken column, which is supposed to signify a life cut short. How old was he when he died? He was 35. That is awful young. For somebody who had so much promise and so much potential. And it's also very young for somebody who was able to accomplish so much in his lifetime. Yeah, that's fascinating. So there's there's a site that people can still go visit. What's the name of the site? It's the Meriwether Lewis Death and Burial Site. And it is attached to a national parkway run by the National Park Service. Okay. Is there any last thoughts you want to say about Lewis? I would say that Lewis's legacy for opening up the West is absolutely undeniable, and it is of the utmost importance. I would also say, just as a little tidbit, that Lewis's exploration of modern-day Oregon and Washington do place that territory into U.S. hands. The claim on that territory by the United States was solidified by their expedition. So those two states are now part of America just because of the expedition. So you have a massive section of the United States that was explored by this team, and a portion of it that was added just because of their work. You've got a team who was able to spread the idea of American democracy to the West Coast, despite the fact that it was a tragic end. The legacy he left behind was incredible, and it's definitely worth remembering. We all learned in school the name Lewis and Clark and the Lewis and Clark expedition, but I feel like he's a much more multifaceted individual who was on this great trajectory in life, and I'm glad that I now know more than just that first Wikipedia paragraph worth. So. Yes, I learned. I definitely learned a lot in yeah. this, this period of time that we've sat down. So. For sure. Well, thank you so much for being on the episode. We might have to have you back sometime. Absolutely. I'm glad I was able to be here, and I appreciate you folks having me.
You just finished part two of our two-part series on Meriwether Lewis with Derek. We hope you enjoyed some of the mysteries that Meriwether Lewis's life offered. If you would like to support this podcast, we have a great offer for you. We recently created t-shirts for 10 and 20. So if you would like to show off the fact that you like this show with a really cool design t-shirt and also support what we do, if you enjoy the the content that we put out and the things that we produce, we would highly appreciate it if you purchase one of these t-shirts. If you go to boft.org slash podcast, you can purchase one for yourself. If you pre-order before September 3rd, you can receive your shirt with no shipping fee. You can get it to your door for a flat $20. That is the best way you can support what we put out and have a pretty cool t-shirt as well. If you have an idea of something that Sarah and I should talk about or a topic that we should discuss, please send us an email. My email address is brad at boft.org. And my email address is sarah with an H at boft.org. And if you want to follow what we're up to, follow us on Instagram at BOFT1864. And as always, support local history. Go to your local historic sites. If you live in the Franklin area or are visiting, please come out for a tour of Carter House or Cardington. You can tour the battlefield or you can get a behind the scenes tour, an extended tour, or you might even get Sarah and I's your tour guide. Thank you so much for listening. Have fun.